It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Hi, this is Nathan. I want to remind you that our 2021 discipleship training programs are now open. If you're interested in taking the truths of God's word even deeper and learning how to practically live out the Christian life, then consider joining us this upcoming year in one of our discipleship programs. You can learn more about all those programs and when they are held by going to ellerslie.com forward slash daily. Now, as I've mentioned, we have students here for our week-long discipleship training. And as such, we've asked some of our staff to present the Daily Thunders this week. So today we have special guest Sarah Guthrie as she shares on Philippians chapter 1 and the importance of magnifying God, whether by life or death. So I've been meditating on the book of Philippians all throughout the year. It seems like I studied, I started in Philippians 1 at the beginning of the year, literally January 1st, if you were to look at my journal entry, you'd see that I had, I believe it was Philippians 1.12 in my journal at the time. And the Lord has just been so sweet as to lead me through Philippians kind of chronologically within life. And so I'd start studying and then, you know, kind of go off into a side study and then something else would happen and I'd land back in the book of Philippians. And so when I was um, asked if I wanted to share the, the first fleshly response is always like, no, I don't like speaking in front of people. I'd rather sit in the back and, you know, just let someone else speak. Um, but I, my mind went to Philippians, and I was like, well, surely, you know, I've been here all year. There has to be something that I can share with you all. And what I actually originally thought I was going to share with you wasn't right, wasn't clicking in, and the Lord uh, directed me back to Philippians 1, kind of where it all began. And so we're going to read this morning out of uh, Philippians 1, 19 through 21. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up there. And, you know, it's been said that the book of Philippians is all a book on uh, the Christian's joy and the joy of the Christian. And I'm not, going to uh, I'm not going to disagree with that, number one, because I'm not a scholar. Um, but also, I would say that that is a theme and a main outflow of the book, certainly. But if you were to ask me my personal opinion on the book of Philippians, if I could only give you one word to describe the book of Philippians, it would be the word mind. And Nathan's kind of been walking through that in his series on the Christian mind. And over and over again throughout this book, you see Paul's mindset, his personal mindset. You see what our mindset is supposed to be in Christ. You see Christ's mindset all throughout the Word of God, uh, all throughout this epistle, I should say. And then it, it climaxes and it outflows into, well, what is the obvious result? If we have the mind of Christ, our mind is to be one of joy-filled expectation and hope in his word. So I want to delve into what our mindset should be when we're facing times of, times of uncertainty, how we can actually glorify God in the midst of uncertainty. So I'm just going to read this portion of scripture, and then we're going to unpack things a little bit. And basically, I'm just taking you through my own study with a few application points and a fun story at the end, because what's Daily Thunder if you don't have a fun story at the end? So, verse 19 says, Paul's writing, he says, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and through the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, 
But with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Have you ever wondered how the end of a story was going to turn out? You know, I was the classic bookworm growing up. Stayed up way too late without my parents knowing. Sorry, Mom and Dad. And, you know, wanted to just read, finish that last chapter. Or maybe it's, you know, you're at the climax of the movie and you're wondering how in the world is this going to, to turn out. Or you're watching, you're staying up way too late, watching the ballots come in and watching the, the votes come in for the election and just thinking maybe in five minutes it's going to uh, look a little bit better than it does right now. Or what if you're waiting to see how the, de- the test results are going to come back? Or what if you're waiting for the prodigal to come home? Or wondering even if the prodigal will ever come home? What about when you're wondering how to make ends meet? There are so many things in life, not just stories, things we read, things we watch, but there's circumstances in our life where we're wondering how things are going to unfold. How is God going to get glory out of the sun? And Paul is in the same set of circumstances. You could say that he's in dire straits um, all throughout this book. And yet, his mindset is unflappable. If you you look at the language that he's using, he is so certain, he is confident, he knows that this will turn out for his deliverance. How? Through prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. He says that he has an earnest expectation and a hope, and that he has a boldness in the middle of his uncertain situation. And so, if the Apostle Paul experienced uncertain times, and yet this is his mindset, we kind of want to know, like, okay, Paul, how do I get that? (laughs) There's something here that I'm missing. There's something that I'm lacking. Well, I think first we have to start and ask ourselves a question, um, which is great when you're studying God's Word, is to ask questions of the Word of God to, to go deeper. And my first question is, okay, what is this? that Paul is mentioning in verse 19. And even though the tense that that word is used in, Paul is literally saying, he's like pointing it out and he's saying this. He's separating something out of his life and he's writing to his audience and he's saying this situation, this circumstance is going to turn out for my deliverance. So what was the this? Well, you've probably heard it before that Paul was in prison at the time of writing this epistle. It's one of his prison epistles. And um, it just, uh, to give a little bit of background and context of how we know that, it says in verse 12 and 13, um, Paul is saying, But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. Now, if you do some digging and you study a little bit, you'll actually learn that Paul was in prison two different times. Um, One was in a Roman prison, and the other was a house arrest in Rome as well. And so at the time that this is being written, it is generally thought that Paul was under house arrest at this time. And you may think, oh, like that's a little bit easier, simpler. Well, not necessarily so. I was doing some research on what this would have been like for Paul, and so I Look, you know, consulted my favorite encyclopedia. His name is Dan McConaughey. And um, I was asking him about 
the situation that Paul would have found himself to be in. And, you know, Paul mentions in verse 13 that it has become evident to the whole palace guard. So like, okay, you know, what's that about? It's the Praetorian Guard. And so Pastor Dan was telling me about, um, about the Praetorian Guard a little bit. And it's really interesting because the Praetorian Guard is like the best of the best, sir, of the Roman imperial army forces at that time. Uh, they are pretty much the Navy SEALs of the day would be their equivalent, if you want to think of it that way. And yet they also, one of their, um, one of their responsibilities was also to guard political prisoners. And so here's Paul, labeled as a political prisoner, <laughs> preacher of the gospel. And not only, you know, you think, okay, he's under house arrest, he, he can just kind of mill about all day, and that's, that's pretty easy. Well, not necessarily so, because, you know, it said, Paul mentions that his chains are in Christ. And back then, to, when, at least for Paul, when he was under house arrest, he was chained to these guards. And he wasn't just like, you know, it's not like when you're disagreeing with your sibling, and I don't know if your parents have ever done this, but, you know, they stick you and your brother or your sister in the same room, and they're like, you better figure this out, and you're going to have to stay in the same room until you can come to agreement on something. It's not like, oh, okay, they're in the vicinity. No, they were chained to Paul, not just one, but two. So you imagine living life with, you know, very closely to your jailers, so to speak. And another thing that I learned was that the shifts that these Praetorian guards would be on was that you had two guards for four hours at a time throughout the day. So when you do the math, and I'm not going to try to do that now because math is not my strong subject in school, you, you'd find that Paul has a lot of one-on-one -on -one time or one-on-two time with these guards that are passing through um, their, their outpost. So, and it was funny because Pastor Dan was saying, you know, talk about having a captive audience. Because Paul is saying, you know, but that he has all boldness as always. And you know that Paul was uh, utilizing that time to preach the gospel. So we know that part of the this that Paul is talking about, part of his circumstances is prison. The second part of it would be chains, right? Chained to the Praetorian Guard. And then the third thing is that a disingenuous gospel is being preached. It says in verse 15 and 16 of chapter 1, some indeed preach Christ, even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains. So here you can imagine that, you know, we all go through those situations in life where we feel like our hands are tied. Well, this is literally what Paul is going through. His hands are literally tied, and he cannot... Um, he knows that some people are being disingenuous in, in sharing the gospel in the way that they are doing it as a, a slant or a, a, almost like a slander and not in sincerity out of him. And yet he kind of can't do anything. He's limited as to how he can respond to that. Yet, even in the midst of uncertainty, Paul remained emphatic that he knew that this would turn out for his deliverance. You know, so many times we walk through circumstances that seemingly chain us to where we don't want to be. You know, and if I could say, if I could bring this into a modern equivalent of what Paul's chains were, yes, of course, we know that we have our suffering brothers and sisters in Christ who are persecuted throughout the world. But I would say probably in modern America, our chains are sometimes our circumstances. 
They're the things that hold us and root us to maybe where we don't want to be. Maybe places and situations where we'd really like to get our way out of. And yet, for whatever reason, they've encircled us. And they're here for a season, maybe indefinitely. And it's right here with this circumstance, this chain, that we are to have a confident and cheerful expectation and hope that God is doing something, whether we see it or not. So now that we know that the what this was that Paul was dealing with, he says that he knows that this will turn out for his deliverance. And that word no is not the no, uh, the K-N-O-W, that you guys have been learning about this week. It's not the word gnosko, which means to actually experience and to, um, to actually experience them, something through relationship, through intimacy, through an actual practical outworking of something. This kind of no, it comes from the word oida, which means to, to perceive something, to... Um, to have eyes of understanding, to be able to perceive, to see in your mind's eye. So just in that slight shift, we see that Paul has vision for how God can work this out. It's like, you know, he's kind of sitting there, maybe cocking his head a little bit, squinting off into this distance and going, yeah, I, I see that God's got this. I see that this is going to, to unfold, whether it be by life or by death, all for the glory of God. He looked at his unfavorable circumstances, and he could see that something was going to happen. And I thought it was so neat, because as I was studying this out, the tense of that word, no, it means that as Paul was making this statement, that his mindset was that God was working it out even as he was speaking. So I love that, because we see that Paul's faith is not just theoretical, hypothetical. He's so confident that it's even coming through, not in just his written words, but even in how he's writing the written words, which just takes a whole level deeper for me. I don't know. I thought that was pretty interesting. And so we see from our passage that we've been looking at, had this actually happened yet? Had God turned all these things for good yet? No, Paul was in the middle of it. If you look at the the language of these few verses that we're studying, you know, that Paul is talking about how this will turn out, and this shall happen this way, and he shall not be ashamed. So this isn't has happened in the past or is currently happening, but this is Paul with faith, with faith saying, I know that this will happen, because he was so assured and confident of who his God was. And you know, when we're in the middle of our circumstances that are rooting us to maybe where we do or don't want to be, we have to know who our God is. We have to know his character. We have to know his word in order to be immovable in the situations that we face. I love a quote by John Greenleaf Whittier. He said, the steps of faith fall in the seeming void and find the rock beneath. And I don't know about you, but I have been in that situation many times where it's like, okay, Lord, I'm taking this step, but I feel like it's a step into nothingness. And, and part of me, the natural part of me feels like, okay, I'm just going to fall flat on my face in this one, Lord. But I'm taking a step of faith. And then the minute I take that step of obedience, I find the rock beneath. And it's the rock of his word. It's the rock of his presence, cheering and guiding and directing and leading like he has promised, he will. In verse 20, the latter half of that verse, uh, Paul's saying, 
I'm just going to read all of verse 20, saying, according to my earnest expectation and my hope, that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. So it's like, wait a second, Paul. You were so confident, you were saying that God is going to turn all this out for your deliverance, and now you're seemingly backtracking, and you're saying, well, it could be this way or this way. Is that a lack of faith? Does Paul, you know, is he kind of growing shaky in his conviction there? And I would say, absolutely not. Not from what I can see. I see that there's a great level of surrender in this verse, where Paul is saying, Jesus, I'm yours, whether by life or by death, however you will receive the most glory, have at me. Have at the situation. Paul could see God being magnified in his life either way, whether by release from his physical chains through being liberated or being set free from his earthly body to enjoy the presence of Jesus that he so dearly longed for. This is, again, it's not a lack of faith. It's not wishy-washy faith. It's a statement of surrender and of great faith in my mind. And how did Paul even know that this was going to happen? Well, it says that he has an earnest expectation and a hope. And that phrase, earnest expectation, is only used one other time in the Word of God. And that's in Romans 8, I believe it's verse 19, where you know, Paul is talking about how the whole creation is just groaning with this earnest expectation, waiting for the redemption. And so we see that even creation is earnestly expecting something. And we know that God is our creator, and he's created not only us and our intricate bodies, but our universe. And it, I want to read you a verse. It says in Romans, oh, I have it here. It says in Romans 15, 13, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, that you may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I love that phrase because it it introduces a facet of God's character, that he is the God of hope. He's not just the God who has some hope, but he is the very essence and embodiment of hope itself. And so therefore, you see this trickle down into his creation, that God is a God of hope, and when the fall happened and took place in creation, now creation is is earnestly expecting, it's hoping, it's waiting. It has, a, it has a, a character attribute that God does, if that makes sense. And it's the same thing with us. If God is the God of all hope, then I would say that it stands to, to reason that we are created to hope. And not just to hope in things or in outcomes or situations or people or money or whatever it is, fill in your own blank, but we are to, created to hope in God, who is the God of all hope who can fulfill and satisfy that place, that chain, as only that he can. Hope is a joyful and confident expectation that something will be fulfilled. It's not wish upon a star sort of stuff. It is, it's not passive. It's active. Earnest expectation, it has this idea of to, the, the literal definition is to look with an outstretched head. And so if I can put that into our language, it's actually to, to crane our neck, to lean forward into seeing what God is doing, to, to squint at the horizon and see that he indeed is coming, that he is coming at the second coming, 
but he's also coming more and more into our lives, into our situations, into our circumstances. Romans 5, 3 through 5 says, And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations or trials, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint. Why? Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. So obviously Paul's not reasoning according to the physical. He's reasoning by faith. And so even though there's uncertainty going all around, all over, <laughs> all over his circumstances, even though he's chained to two guards, with eyes of faith he can see that God is doing something. I don't know, if I was in that situation, I don't think I'd be there. I, have to be, I know I wouldn't be there, I'll be honest. <laughs> um, but I want to be. And in Christ, there's no reason not to be. So moving on, again, kind of throughout our portion of Scripture here. He had an earnest expectation and a hope, but what was that? Well, he says that in nothing he will be ashamed. And that word ashamed means to dishonor, to actually disfigure something, or literally to, um, you know, pretty much pick up a paintbrush dunk it in a bucket of shame, and spread it all over someone or something. That is to ashamed something. But the reality is, is that when we are in Christ, we will never be ashamed. And I was thinking, I was like, okay, why is that? Well, it's because he has already bore our shame, and he's removed it from us. It says in Hebrews that he despised the shame, meaning he could actually somehow think little of it and put that aside and still go to the cross for us. And remove that off of us so that we can walk forward, like Paul says, with all boldness, as always. Not just the occasional spurt of, yay, I can witness today, but I'm, you know, I marked my quota for the month or the year or the quarter, and then I'll, I'll schedule that out for some time later. No, all boldness, as always. So now also Christ shall be magnified in our body. It says in Psalm 34, 5, and I'm sure that this would be a, with, that this would be a verse that Paul would know intimately, being a Hebrew of Hebrews and a Pharisee of Pharisees, it says, those who look to him, meaning God, will be radiant, and their faces will never be covered with shame. So we see here that the key to being unashamed is all in our focus. And if you look at you know, Hebrews 12, 2, it says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So again, from that verse, what is to be our focus? Who is to be our focus? It's Jesus. Even Jesus had a focus in this passage, if you look at it. But looking unto Jesus, and this word looking, it's not a passing glance. It's not a, a global overview where I'm looking, like, I'm looking at you right now. But I'm really not looking at all of you. I'm sorry to say that, but I'm not looking at all of you in the moment. But I am looking at all of you. That's not what the author of Hebrews is talking about. This word for looking is to consider attentively one person. It's to stop looking at all the things and to look at the one thing. That's what this word means. And you know what? That is so hard. <laughs> Especially, I don't know, ladies, that's hard. We're used to multitasking. We're used to having 5,000 windows up on our computer. At least that's how mine looks if you look at it right now. And yet, that's, it's a classic example of Martha and Mary. 
Martha, who's distracted with many things, cumbered down with much serving. And yet Mary chose to disregard all of the things and to choose the one thing that was needful in that moment, which was to sit at the feet of Jesus, to look unto Jesus, to consider attentively Jesus. I often used to grapple with the question, how does one live in light of eternity? And I know that that's, I know we've, we've t- it's a Christianese phrase. That's why I was having trouble with it, because I've heard it so many times that it's like, what does it really mean to live for eternity? You know, we hear, I think it was Jonathan Edwards, who used the quote, you know, Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. But I was thinking, I was like, what does that actually mean, to live in light of eternity? But according to Hebrews 12, too, <clears throat> to live for eternity if eternity is a person, if eternity is Jesus, then to live for eternity is to live for Jesus. Or if I can even say it this way, to have an eternal focus is to have a Jesus focus. A focus that is looking unto him, not at the situations and the circumstances, but is rooted and fixed upon him. So if I could retool uh, the quote, it would be, Lord, stamp Jesus on my eyeballs. Lord, stamp Jesus on my mind's eye. Let him be my focus. So I don't know if that helps you as it did me because I was like, okay, but I, I know we can do these things and that means that I'm living like for an eternal focus, but ultimately it's just living with Jesus in view. And right now we know that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, and that's where we are right now. We, we don't see Jesus physically, tangibly returning yet, but we will one day. And now is the day for a great faith amongst God's people, especially in these days, especially in the United States right now. This is how we have all boldness, as always, in all situations, whether prison or a palace or somewhere in between, is to look unto Jesus. And that's how our faith will be built in the midst of uncertainty. And Paul reaches up to his climax in verse 21. And he says, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Meaning life is Christ. Everything is about him. Everything is for him. Everything is to him. Lilius Trotter put it this way. She was a missionary um, in the Victorian age to what was then Algiers, which now we would call Algeria. She was a tremendous painter. She had an amazing talent, and she surrendered it all gave it to Jesus, and went to go serve the least and those who had never heard the name of Jesus Christ in a foreign country. And she said it this way, Christ, 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 filling all the horizon, everything to us, everything through us, to live is Christ. Amen. And here you just have to imagine her in the country where she is, where it's desert. And when she says filling all the horizon, you know, she's not looking at the New York City skyline of 21st century. She's looking at a barren land, and yet she says, filling all the horizon. That, to me, that's a beautiful picture of what to live as Christ means. It means he's filling everything, filling all of our own personal horizons, or at least he should be. And if he hasn't, that means we're actually magnifying other things in our lives, whether it's people or um, something that we're an acclamation or an award or a certain life season um, we're magnifying, we're making much of something else 
other than Jesus. And Paul even uses that word in this portion of Scripture where he says that Christ will be magnified, will be made much of in his life. However, God wanted to turn his circumstances for his glory. We too can glorify God when we have the same mindset that to live is Christ and to die is gain. When that's adopt, in essence, adopting Paul's mindset is adopting the mindset of Christ. And if you go further into Philippians 2, you can read all about the mind of Christ. We're not going to go in there to uh, go down that bunny trail today. But we can glorify God when we have the mind of Christ. You know, and when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's praying to the Father. And let me see if I can find it real quick. He even mentions how he wants to glorify the Father. He says, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And so we see that Christ's mindset was one of glorifying the Father. And he was even praying that in, in his greatest hour of need. And I would say, as a question to my own heart, would that be my response when I'm, when I'm in a Garden of Gethsemane moment? Is that what my earnest heart's cry is? Or am I just praying for relief or, from, or for release <laughs> or from personal freedom from whatever I don't want to deal with? When God could be using that very chain to demonstrate his glory in a way that freedom never could. It's just an interesting thought. So a few points of application for us today. I'm going to ask us a few questions, and you can take them into your own walk with the Lord, into your own prayer closet at some point. But what is your this? We know what Paul's this was. It was prison. It was chains. It's a Praetorian guard. But what is your chain? What is your circumstance? What is your thing that maybe you need to start saying, I have an earnest expectation and a hope that some way, somehow, God is going to get glory out of this thing? And, and even if it looks like he's not, even if it looks like nothing has happened on the surface, I have faith that he is moving, that he is working all things together for good. Are you mounting up with fresh hope, with earnest expectation, leaning forward to see what he's going to do in your situation? Or are you limiting God with a small faith, making God smaller than he is by adopting just a human mindset of what we see is what we get? That's not Christianity. It's just not. You, you start reading the word of God, you see that there's a lot that we get that we don't see. <laughs> Do we need to repent of faithlessness, of doubt, of confusion that doesn't need to be there? Can you, like Paul, say that your chains are in Christ? To look at the thing that you don't want and to say, I am in Christ and therefore... Because I'm in Christ, this situation, too, will be utilized and leveraged, and leveraged for Christ's glory. Lilius Trotter once said, take the very hardest thing in your life, 
the place of difficulty, whether inward or outward, whether it's circumstantial or whether it's just things in your own heart and soul, and expect God to triumph gloriously right in that very spot. And I, that's one of my favorite quotes because it, to me it just it puts, the, puts it a finger on my areas of where I'm having a lack of faith. And then she says, just there, he can bring your soul into blossom. But how often we give up before we can actually see the blossom to unfold because we've stopped believing, we've stopped having faith, we've stopped hoping and and earnestly expecting. Second thing is, what is your prayer and your supply? Paul mentions that he knows that this will turn out for his deliverance through your prayer and through the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So Paul is writing to the Philippian church. These were his friends. He's known them for a number of years. They've provided for him when they could financially. They were not known for um, being affluent or prosperous in a financial sort of way, but they, they liberally gave when they could. And they, Paul even mentions later on in this book that they had recently just given to him, and he was thanking them for that. But this verse also indicates that he already knew that they were praying. And I don't know if you've ever gone through those times in your life where you know you've been carried by God's grace because of the prayers of the saints. And, you know, it's easy to take a selfish turn and be like, well, yeah, someone else is supposed to be praying for me. And I would just like to encourage you in saying, that's the, that's the wrong mindset. Instead of wondering about who it is that's praying for you in this room or back at home or whatever it is, why don't you start being the person that's praying for others? And you know what? Even if not a single soul on this planet is praying for you, there is one who is praying for you. It's the one who ever lives to make intercession for you. His name is Jesus. And I'd say his prayers surpass mine, definitely. So um, I think that we can be content with that if no one else happens to be praying for us. But what if we could actually play a part via prayer for someone else's deliverance and salvation. Now, we know when Paul is using the word deliverance, he's not talking about his salvation. Um, he's already had a very dramatic and amazing uh, conversion story about on the road to Damascus. He's in Christ. He's talking about a, a physical deliverance, a deliverance of his well-being and of his, of his physical well-being in this, in this situation. And yet he knew that it was the prayers of others that were contributing that we're helping, that we're aiding. And that word supply, all all I think of is, you know, when Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. He's an inexhaustible supply for us. That word supply means to help or to aid. And we know that that's one of the words for the Holy Spirit. Jesus said that when he sends the helper, the helper is coming. And what is the helper going to do? He's going to help. He's going to aid. He's going to be our advocate. He's going to be the person in our court when no one else is. You know, so if we ever find ourselves chained to two Praetorian guards, we know that even though there may be two other people in the room, there's actually a third person in the room, and it's Jesus, because he is our supply. But are you making him your source, or are you turning to other things to fill you that can never satisfy? Because that will be the quickest thing that will lead us to wonder, why isn't God showing up? But meanwhile, we've been neglecting him the whole time through our actions. The next thing is, who's being magnified in your life? You automatically think of getting out the magnifying glass, and what does a magnifying glass do? It makes things bigger. 
you look at the prefix of that word in Greek, it's mega. So thinking mega big, enlarging something, to make much of something. And Paul said that he wanted Christ to be magnified in his body, whether by life or by death. He wanted Christ to be made much of, to receive the glory from the situation. And it's like John the Baptist when he said, he, Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. In order for something else to get bigger, we have to make the other things and make ourselves lesser so that we can see Jesus grow bigger and bigger in our life. And if he's not being magnified in our lives, then we need to run to the foot of the cross. We need to run to Jesus. We need to confess magnifying the other things in our lives, like I was mentioning before. It may be self. It may be another person that we're magnifying. It may be um, something at work. Whatever it is, if it's not Jesus, it needs to be confessed and repented of. So he's put back in his rightful place. And when you think about it, Paul's outcomes that he could see God receiving glory was life or death. It was a life or death situation. And you may think, well, that's not really my situation. But you have two blanks to fill in of your own. Yours may not be a life or death situation, but what are the two options for you? Fill in your own blank. If it's whether by prosperity or poverty, Christ will be magnified in my body. Whether it's whether I get the job promotion or whether I don't, Christ will be magnified in my life. Whether it's singleness or marriage, Christ will be magnified in my life. Whether it's Biden or Trump, Christ will be magnified in my life. And the effects of, the effects of Paul's boldness, it's amazing. If you, if you look into history, and again, I learned this from the encyclopedia that I was telling you about before. Um, Pastor Dan was telling me that when you look at historical evidence, it shows that the Praetorian Guard were often sent to the borders of the Roman Empire to hold the front line. You know, the front line was, it's an important place. You have to maintain that line so that your empire stays the same size or grows bigger when they want it to. And when you look at historical evidence, it shows that all these churches popped up along the border of the Roman Empire. Isn't that amazing? Do you think it's a coincidence that all these Praetorian guards were with Paul for probably two years, for multiple hours throughout the day, hearing sermon upon sermon, seeing the book of Philippians being penned, as well as other prison epistles, and then somehow, we don't know how, but somehow, after these Praetorian guards left and were probably placed on the border, which is most likely their assignment at some point or another, churches are popping up. Do you think Paul had an impact? Do you think his chains were for something far greater than he could see at the time? And yet he was faithful to glorify God in the midst of uncertainty, not knowing how it was going to go out, probably not knowing how it was going to come out, knowing that it was either going to be by life or by death, and probably didn't even, maybe he didn't even know of that fruit. But we knew it. We know it. So take it into your own life and know it. Even if you can't see things cropping up on the borders or on the front lines of your life, hold fast in faith. I wanted to close by telling you a story. It's a true story of a man who was also in prison. In the modern day, I'd say within the past 50 years or so, and it's, again, another story of how he couldn't see the impact that he was having. 
probably wondered if God would deliver him, whether it was by life or by death. But the story of how he glorified God in the midst of his bleakest of circumstances is one that's remarkable. And I think we all, I know I need to hear it again today. I've been reading it for the past few few days, and I still can't get over it. But this is a story uh, that's as told by Nick Ripkin in his book, The Insanity of God. He writes, The authorities moved Demetri a thousand kilometers away from his family and locked him in a prison. His cell was so tiny that when he got out of bed, it took but a single step either to get to the door of his cell to reach the stained and cracked sink mounted on the opposite wall or to use the foul open toilet in the far corner of the cell. Even worse, according to Dimitri, he was the only believer among 1,500 hardened criminals. Dimitri pointed out two reasons for his strength in the face of torture. They were two spiritual habits that he had learned from his own father, disciplines that Dimitri had taken with him into prison. Without these two disciplines, Dimitri insisted his faith would not have survived. For 17 years in prison, every morning at daybreak, Dimitri would stand at attention by his bed. As was his custom, he would face the east, raise his arms in praise to God, and then he would sing a heart song to Jesus. The reaction of the other prisoners was predictable. Dimitri recounted the laughter, the cursing, the jeers. The other prisoners banged metal cups on their iron gates of the prison in angry protest. They threw food and sometimes human waste to try to shut him up and extinguish the only true light shining in the dark place every morning at dawn. There was another discipline too, another custom that Dimitri told me about. Whenever he found a scrap of paper in the prison, he would sneak it back to his cell. There he would pull out a stub of a pencil or a tiny piece of charcoal that that he had saved, and he would write on that scrap of paper as tiny as he could all of the Bible verses and scriptural stories or songs that he could remember. When the scrap was completely filled, he would walk to the corner of his little jail cell where there was a concrete pillar that constantly dripped water. Dimitri would take the paper fragment, reach as high as he possibly could, and stick it on the damp pillar as a praise offering to God. Of course, whenever one of the jailers spotted a piece, the piece of paper on the pillar, he would come into his cell, take it down, and read it beat Dimitri severely, and threaten him with death. Still, Dimitri refused to stop practicing his two disciplines. Every day he rose at dawn to sing his song, and every time he found a scrap of paper, he filled it with scripture and praise. This went on year after year. His guards tried to make him stop. The authorities did unspeakable things to his family. At one point, they even led him to believe that his wife had been murdered, and that his children had been taken by the state, Dimitri's resolve finally broke. That night, he sat on his jail cell bed and was, in deep in, and, and was in deep despair. But miraculously, the Holy Spirit of the living God allowed Dimitri to hear the voices of his loved ones as they prayed. The next morning, when the guards marched into his cell, Dimitri's back was straight. His shoulders were squared, and there was a strength on his face and in his eyes. He looked at his captors and he declared, In the night, God let me hear the voices of my wife and my children and my brother praying for me. I now know that my wife is alive and physically well. I know that my sons are with her. I also know that they are all still in Christ, so I am not signing anything. 
His persecutors continued to discourage and to silence him. Dimitri remained faithful. He was overwhelmed one day by a special gift from God's hand. In the prison yard, he found a whole sheet of paper, and God had laid a pencil beside it. Dimitri went on. I rushed back to my cell, and I wrote every scripture reference, every Bible verse, every story, every song that I could recall. I filled both sides of the paper with as much of the Bible as I could. I reached up, and I stuck the entire sheet of paper on that wet concrete pillar, and then I stood and looked at it. To me, it seemed like the greatest offering I could ever give Jesus from my prison cell. Of course, my jailer saw it. I was beaten and punished. I was threatened with execution. Dimitri was dragged from his cell. As he was dragged down the corridor in the center of the prison, the strangest thing happened. Before they reached the door leading to the courtyard, before stepping out into the place of execution, 1,500 hardened criminals stood at attention by their beds. They faced the east, and they began to sing. Dimitri told me that it sounded to him like the greatest choir in all of human history. 1,500 hardened criminals raising their arms and beginning to sing the heart song that they had heard Dimitri sing every day, every morning, for all of those years. Dimitri's jailers instantly released their hold on his arms and stepped away from him in terror. One of them demanded to know, who are you? Dimitri straightened his back and stood as tall and as proud as he could. He responded, I am a son of the living God, and Jesus is his name. The guards returned to his cell, returned him to his cell. Sometime later, Dimitri was released, and he was returned to his family. Whether by life or by death, to live is Christ. Who was Dimitri looking to every morning when he faced the east? Was he not looking into Jesus? So my encouragement is to you, let's look to Jesus. For when we do, we can raise our arms to the east, face him, praise him in any circumstance, whatever we may be facing, and expect and hope for God to be magnified in our lives, whether by life or by death. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. You are so worthy. You are worthy of a words written on a concrete pillar. You are worthy of us raising our hands in adoration and worship. You are worthy of us being mistreated. You are worthy. Jesus, I pray that we would have faith in who you have said you are through your word. I pray that we would magnify you in our bodies, whether by life or by death, that you would point out what our this is in our current circumstance, and that you would show us your way no matter how seemingly small or how hidden or how insignificant, we can bring you glory all the way through it. We love you, Jesus, and we just praise you. In your name I pray, amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. And our weekend service is streamed at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellersley.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellersley campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an
an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.